Hey, good morning. Really good to see you all this morning. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church, and it's my joy to continue to open up the Psalms. This is actually the last week, the end of summer, kind of, is here. And so we are drawing our little mini-series in the Psalms to a close with Psalm 9. And that's actually fitting because Psalm 9 is kind of a transition psalm as how it functions in the book of Psalms. And so it is drawing this kind of section of Psalm 3 to Psalm 9 to a close, and it wraps, wraps that section up and puts a nice little um, incomplete ellipsis on it. So it's really interesting how that functions. But I want to take just a couple of seconds to remind us of where we've been the last few weeks in Psalms, um, because I think that'll be helpful in even helping you understand how you should interact with the Psalms. Because as you read the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is leading you on a journey. And through that journey, it acknowledges all of the highs and lows of human life. And in all of the highs and lows, what the Psalms do is they bring you to Jesus. They show you Jesus. They show you the need for Jesus. They show you how Jesus fulfills um, our longings. They show you how Jesus um, is the answer to all of the questions that will come up in your life. And so in Psalm 3, we began with um, a psalm that was rooted in the historical events of David running away from Absalom, who wanted to kill him. And it's basically like this calling out, Lord, save me, help me. And sprinkled in there is, are a couple of um, acknowledgments that God is my shield and that he will avenge my enemies. But more powerfully is this sense that David is in despair. And then Psalm 4 talks about going to sleep and trusting that God is going to protect him. Psalm 5 talks about waking up in the morning and learning how God has protected him. Psalm 6 and 7 send us back into the depths, both experientially and then in Psalm 7, a longing for justice to come. Psalm 8 is a great encouragement from David that the Lord sits on the throne and his name is glorious. And Psalm 9 is kind of a summary of that. And Psalm 9 is a psalm of perfect judgment, God's perfect judgment. And so David is finding resolution to the problem that he was facing of being attacked by his own son, of the promises of God seeming like they were brought into question through his experiences and he's resting in God's perfect judgment. So you can turn there with me. We're going to be going through Psalm 9 together this morning. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. 
For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them, and he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Let the, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Please pray with me. Father, you are just and holy, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, And Lord, your word tells us that even though at times in this life, it seems as if you are disconnected, it seems as if you are impotent, it seems as if you don't care, that your justice will come, that your judgments will come, and they will come with power, they will come with full effect, and they will be eternal. Lord, because you have, not forgotten, you have not forgotten the work of your hands. You have not forgotten or forsaken your creation, but you will save it, Lord. You will redeem it. You will purify it. And you will create an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom built on righteousness, a kingdom that is good, that is pure, where there is no evil. And so, Lord, as we come into conflict with you this morning, as we are confronted by your purity and your goodness, Lord, disarm us. Lord, strip away our arguments. Strip away our defenses. Strip away our distractions. And let us meet you, Lord. And form in us a whole heart that worships you, that loves you, Lord, we need your help to do that this morning. We ask that you would work through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So this is a psalm about God's perfect judgment producing wholehearted worshipers. God's perfect judgment producing wholehearted worshipers. The first two verses really tell you what it's all about. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So that is an expression, a portrait of a wholehearted worshiper, someone who is unified in their love of God and is completely responding to what God has done. There's no reservation. There's no division. There's no distraction. Someone who is all in. So what can unite you like that? What can unite any of us like that? What can give us a whole heart? Because I don't know if you're anything like me, but I know that my heart is divided. It's fractured. And the heart in the ancient Near East and in Hebrew culture was a description of the will. So it includes your feelings, but it's more about kind of that gut-level desire and decision-making. And so that's where I find, when I search my own heart, division and fracture. It's like, do I really want only God? Do I really give thanks only to God? Do I really worship only God? If I'm honest, no. And yet, this psalm seems to speak as if there's a way to do that. There's a way to become a wholehearted worshiper. And so what the rest of the psalm, verses 3 all the way to the end, verse 20, what it's doing is it's describing God's perfect judgment. It's describing God's perfect judgment. And so you can see the logic of the psalm. David is saying, in order to be a perfect and a wholehearted worshiper of God, I need to remind myself and recount his perfect judgments. And so that is going to be what we're going to spend a little bit of time. There's some stuff about God's judgment that we can learn from the psalm that I think will be helpful. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at about five ways or five different aspects of God's judgment that we learn from the psalm to kind of like give some structure to it because the psalmist kind of goes all over the place and he says a lot of stuff. So we're going to organize it into five different categories of what God's perfect justice looks like. But then we're going to apply it. We're going to get out of the academic and we're going to make it real. Because we're not meant to just learn. We do learn and we should learn. But the learning leads to worshiping. And so hopefully this psalm will help us do that this morning. All right, so the first thing that I kind of saw in this psalm when it came to God's perfect judgment is that God's perfect judgment is powerful. God's perfect judgment is powerful. Look with me in verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. 
There's power in God's judgment coming against his enemies. They're falling back. They're stumbling. They're retreating. And this is actually, you see um, similar language that is used when Jesus is initially arrested and they're asking him who he is. Who do you say that you are, Jesus? And Jesus responds with the name of God, I am. And they fall back and they're dazed. There's power. Just in his presence, there's a type of judgment that produces power. Verse 5 You see it, you have rebuked the nations and you have made the wicked perish. They're defeated, they're done. There's power in God's judgment. Verse six, the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. It's complete. It's powerful enough to get the job done. Verse 12, he who avenges blood is mindful of them, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. He avenges blood. Only someone who is powerful can avenge, can defeat our enemies. And then verse 15, the nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. So this, is, this reminded me a little bit of Haman, right? If you, we go all the way back to Esther, Haman builds this um, edifice that he is actually going to hang or skewer Mordecai on. And it turns out, when God's justice comes, that Haman is the one who ends up on that stake. And so there's a poetic justice. And that's what this is talking about in the psalm, is God is so powerful that he uses the wicked's own devices to catch them. He uses it against them. And it kind of looks like he's not doing anything. It would be kind of an aspect of God's passive judgment. He's not doing anything. He's just letting their own plans unfold and allowing them to catch their makers up. And you see in verse 16 that this is actually one of the ways that he makes himself known as all-powerful. He says, you know what? I don't even need to do anything. I can just use what you've already done against you. His judgments are pure. That is his execution of his judgment. So they're powerful. The psalm is a psalm of power. It's a psalm of victory, of God winning against his enemies in power. The second thing, and we'll just mention these briefly, is that God's perfect judgment is eternal. It's everlasting. There's a couple of places here, verses 6 and 7, specifically where you see this language. And verse 6 says very blatantly, the enemy has come to an end in everlasting ruins. So it's not a temporary victory. It's not a temporary judgment. It is everlasting. It is eternal it's final, it's complete. There's nothing left to be done. And verse 7, this is comparing God to the enemies who are in everlasting ruins and has, the enemies have perished. 7, but the Lord sits enthroned 
forever. So the enemies, the enemies that David has been so worried about that they've been keeping him up at night, now are done. They're in the ground, they're dead, they're buried, they're not coming back. But God sits on his throne. That's the place of judgment. That's where the royal king is ruling over his kingdom, and he is sitting there forever. It's an eternal judgment. Related to that is the third thing that we learn about God's perfect judgment is that it is perfect. This is perfect. Look at verse 4, some of the language that is used. It is a just cause. It's a righteous judgment. Verses 7 and 8, there's justice, there's uprightness. Verse 12, at the end, he doesn't forget. It's complete. There's no stone left unturned. It is all-encompassing justice. It's perfect. And his judgment is on the wicked. In this psalm, there's a lot of language and a lot of descriptions of what happens to the wicked, to the nations who don't follow after God, who are infected with evil and rebellion and are enemies of God's work of redemption. And they're perishing. They're being cast out. They're being separated. They're being removed. And that's all part of his perfect judgment. It's pure. There is no defilement that God allows to exist in his kingdom. It is perfect. It's holy. It's not mixed. There is no imperfection in it. I'm friends with a structural engineer, and part of what he has to do is he has to go and test the materials that are building structures, right? And what he's looking for is he's making sure that the builders have not cut corners and mixed in things that are cheaper, but ultimately don't hold weight very well. Now I'm terrified that that actually happens, so I didn't want to know that. You're welcome. But I'm really glad that someone is going and testing and double-checking and making sure that the bridge that's supposed to be built of concrete or whatever they make bridges of is actually made out of that thing and not styrofoam, for example, right? Because if it's not pure, it will crack and the weight will fall. Well, the same thing is true about God's judgment. And I know that we are kind of um, ambivalent, I think, as a culture. We're ambivalent about judgment. I think more and more we like the idea of judgment because we see real problems in this world. But it's judgment that is not quite perfect because it's for that person, not for me. I want judgment for that issue, but don't talk to me about my own imperfections. But what we are confronted with in God's word is that his judgment is perfect. He doesn't allow any impurities because what he's building is eternal. It's lasting. And that leads into the fourth thing that we learn about God's judgment is that it's protective. 
God's judgment is protective. Verse 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. Now, one of the things I thought was interesting was David's shift in language. And I'm just, this is kind of an aside, but it's neat. In Psalm 3, David describes God as a shield. In verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Well, now, God's showing his faithfulness to David over the progression of his life. And in this psalm, he's reflecting, and he's like, you know what? You, Lord, are a stronghold. You guys want a shield or a stronghold? Which one do you want? Stronghold, right? David is learning. God's protection of me is not just a shield. It felt like a shield, But what he has learned about God is that he is way more secure than he ever imagined. And so now he's getting more expressive. He's getting more um, elaborate in how he's describing God. You are a stronghold for the oppressed. You're a stronghold not for the strong. You're a stronghold not for the people who help themselves. You are a stronghold for the weak, for the disadvantaged. Because that stronghold is strong enough that you don't have to fortify it with anything else. He and he alone. And his judgment is what produces that. His judgment is protective to the weak. To those who seek after him, he is their strength. Verse 11 elaborates this more. Sing praises to the Lord He sits enthroned in Zion. It's a city. The stronghold is a city, and that's where the Lord is. The Lord's presence in the city of Zion means that there are gates, there are protections that are keeping out all enemies, and there is nothing that is evil or impure that enters into his kingdom, to that eternal city. It's beautiful protective. There's a place of refuge for the downcast, for the troubled, for the disadvantaged, for the persecuted. And then finally, the last one is that God's perfect judgment is merciful. His judgment, like we just said, is not for the strong. It's for the oppressed in verses 9 and 10. Those who know your name and put your trust in you You have not forsaken, for they seek after you. He is showing mercy. Because what we know, and we're going to get to this in a second, is that God's perfect judgment, the implication is this, his judgment comes down to every single one of us. Every single one of us. And so how can there be anyone who is in the category of the protected, unless his judgment is merciful, unless he shows mercy, unless there's a way of mercy for those who seek after him, that he would allow them in. And this comes in this cry that David inserts after reflecting on what it means to be afflicted. 
It means that you have been persecuted and pursued from outside by enemies, that you have been beaten down. And what David knows is that his own sin, his own imperfections, his own impurities, his own disobedience, his own rebellion against God are not neat and clean separated from the enemies that are pursuing him. They're connected. And so he cries out. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. And now David is taking the language of affliction and applying them to those who hate him. And David knows, probably better than any of us, that there is an unseen enemy that is pursuing him. Yes, it's Absalom, his son, but there's something that is using Absalom to try and tear down God's kingdom. And they're his enemies. And he asks God to have mercy. So we learned those five things about God's perfect judgment. Maybe that's interesting to you. Maybe you're like, duh. That's fine. Um, powerful, eternal, perfect, protective, merciful. I want to bring your attention to something about this psalm that's really interesting. It's in the superscription, which is part of the original manuscript. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban. So that is a transliteration. It's a Hebrew term that they didn't know what to do with. So they just transliterated it. This is what literally how to pronounce it in Hebrew, Muth Laban. Um, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, it's what the early church used and probably was very well informed from how the Jewish people were using the Psalms. The Septuagint actually translates it according to the death of the son. Ben is son in Hebrew, so the word there is there, and lama is death, death of the son. And probably... This was an instruction to sing this song according to the tune of another song, The Death of the Son. Now, why? Why? That seems weird. Like, that's random. This is a psalm about giving thanks for God's perfect justice. How does the death of the Son factor into that? Well, for David, it would absolutely factor in. Because the death of his son the death of the son was where he saw perfect judgment executed. Where he saw the power, the eternality, the perfection, the protective, and the merciful qualities of God's perfect judgment coming to fruition as Absalom died and the rebellion was ended. And David went back into Jerusalem, triumphant, because of what God had done. And David had learned enough to know, yes, that hurt because it was his son. But this was a work of God bringing about his perfect justice. And of course, we know that in David's case, the death of David's son didn't actually perfect the kingdom. It didn't actually protect Jerusalem, because David's next sons took care of that for him. Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Kingdom divided, Israel in exile, 
What's going on? It wasn't until another one of David's sons, another son of David, was born that this actually was fulfilled. And so we take that understanding of there's a debt, there's a connection, there's a death of an oppressor, Absalom oppressing David. The death of oppressor leads to the liberation of the oppressed. And in Jesus' life, the fulfillment of the son of David, the death of the oppressor seems like it doesn't happen. It seems like the oppressed is the one who dies. And so in the death of Christ, the death of the Son, we are confronted with this paradox of justice that the one who was innocent died. And yet, Jesus understands this as a work of God's perfect judgment. His death, a perfect judgment of God that he is taking on for himself. And so I want us to look at Scripture for two different ways that people responded to Jesus. Because Jesus shows himself to be the king. He's the eternal king. He's the son of David. He is the perfect justice of God. He is a walking judgment because he is the king seated on the throne. He is the perfect judge. And when he's walking the earth, how people responded to him was very telling. And it's really helpful for us as we seek to be wholehearted worshipers. So the first way, the first way that people respond to Jesus is the way of the rich young ruler. Coming to Jesus, seeing, hey, this guy is onto something here. He could be the Messiah. He's talking about this eternal kingdom. I want in on that. Hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to get into that kingdom, to have what you are selling? Tell me what I need to do. Jesus says, keep the law. It's like, okay, check. Done that. You got anything else for me, Jesus? Jesus responds to him. Okay, since you've done that, go and sell all that you have and follow me. Sell all that you have, give it away, follow me. Come, you can have this kingdom. And the man turned and walked away, sad, because he had many things. Now, that person responded to Jesus, responded to the perfect judgment of Jesus, kind of coolly. Like, hmm, I don't think I'm really wanting that. Here's why. It tells us right in the scriptures. It says, because he had many possessions. So he was self-satisfied in what he had. He didn't need the kingdom of God that much. He's like, I've got it. I'm happy with what I've got. I'm not willing to give it up to go get that. So I'm just going to find a different way. But it That was not the only place that he was self-satisfied. He was also self-satisfied in his righteousness, in his ability to keep the law. Jesus just lets him keep, what what does the psalm say? Sunk in the pit that he made. 
Jesus just says, okay, you think you've kept the law, think that you've kept the law. I won't stop you from that. Thinking that you are good enough morally, that you're a good enough person, that you don't need Jesus, that you can keep the law yourself, is a pit of destruction that you will not be able to escape from. Jesus later says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven or the kingdom of God. He's not just talking about material worth. If you are rich in your own good works, there is no reason for you to follow Jesus. And you too, when you're confronted with God's perfect justice, will turn and walk away sad. But there's another way. There's another way to respond. And for that, we're going to turn to what the scriptures call a woman of the city, a woman of the night, if you know what I mean, who Jesus comes into contact with. And he's sitting and eating, and this woman, a known sinner, despicable, despised, a ruiner of households, someone who was just completely forsaken and cast off, she takes this flask made of alabaster that was filled with ointment, oil, perfume, and breaks it. And she starts to anoint Jesus. She starts to shower him with it. She's weeping in love for this man who just showed up. He hadn't even done anything. He hadn't said anything. Her eyes were open to the reality that this was the perfect judge. And I have nothing. But I've got this flask. It's all I've got. I want you to have it, Lord. If for no other reason, just then you are deserving. You are worthy of this. And she's at his feet. And the people there with him are like, hmm, this is awkward. Why is Jesus letting this woman of the city touch him? This is getting pretty intimate. Hey, Jesus, what are you doing? Why aren't you recoiling? Why aren't you judging her? And Jesus gives the parable of the man who is forgiven much versus the man who is forgiven little. And then he looks at this woman and says, thank you. Because you and your love for me, your gratitude, your wholehearted worship of me, you've actually anointed my body for burial. Because Jesus knew what that woman didn't yet. Jesus knew that he was about to go to the cross and to die for her. He was about to take the perfect and righteous and holy justice and judgment from God that was due to her, due to the rich young ruler, and he was taking it upon himself. And he knew that she was one of those whom he was going to die for. And just think of that as something that just encouraged Jesus on his way to the cross. This woman completely transformed, worshiping him, loving him with everything that she had right before he was walking to the cross for her. What a picture and of why Jesus was going to the cross. 
It was because the Father was making a whole people out of her. A whole people who looked like her, who worshipped him wholeheartedly with everything they've got. And so for us, here's what I want. I want all of us to be confronted with God's perfect judgment again. I want you to know that there is a judge. That God does not lower standards to save us. He doesn't see your imperfections and it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter that much. Come on in. You've done more good things than bad things. Come on in. We'll figure it out. No. He executes his perfect judgment. All of your twisted good works, all of your twisted attempts to fulfill the law, to self-satisfy yourself, he has judged and covered in the death of Christ. And you are given eternal life in this perfect kingdom. And so, where's your alabaster flask? What are you holding on to, friends? What are you protecting from Jesus? Where are you hedging? Where are you unwilling to follow a king like that who's given you everything? Where are you more like the rich young ruler than you are the great sinner? Because to the extent that you protect yourself from God's mercy and from needing God's mercy by dismissing your sin, by just kind of brushing it aside, from not seeing your need, from depending on something else, you will prevent yourself from loving Christ. And what God is doing in us through his word is he's showing us more and more and more how much we need his perfect judgment and how much we are dependent on that judgment being placed on Christ for us. And so I want us to grow more and more in love of Christ. To unite our wills, everything that we have, to following him, to loving him, to responding to the grace that he has opened up to us. And maybe right now, you are still unsure Maybe you're still kind of for the first time like the rich young ruler and like the woman seeing Jesus clearly and kind of coming to terms with the reality that, oh, you know what? It actually makes sense that there's a judge because I long for justice. It makes sense that there's a God who created me with a desire for the good, the true, and the beautiful, and I want that. There's a warning here, and it's that don't allow yourself to be self-satisfied. Don't try and solve this on your own. Don't try and solve the problem of human wickedness in which we all participate through what you can do. But invite God into that. Have your eyes opened to who it is that is presented to you this morning. Trust him. He's died for sinners. He's building an eternal kingdom, and he wants you in it. So get in it. Please pray with me. 
Father, we thank you. We thank you for how your word brings clarity to our lives. And God, I ask that, um, that we would be disrupted, Lord, because we are forgetful people. We forget all that you've done for us. We grow cold to it. We just prevent ourselves from going there because it's ugly sometimes. We want to think that we're good enough, Lord. And so, God, I ask that you would give us the grace of seeing our wickedness, of seeing our need for a Savior, that we, like the woman who anointed your body, would give everything, that we would have our entire being united around giving you thanks and praise, that we would tirelessly recount your wonderful deeds. God, that we would be a community that is constantly reminding each other and helping us do that. Lord, that you would be present with us as you work your spirit into us through your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.